Welcome to another episode of Jackman Radio. Happy to be joined by my brother Mike today over there. And I'm your host, Eric Jackman. And we're psyched to be joined by my friend and fellow anti-war activist extraordinaire, Mr. Dave DeCamp. Dave, thanks for uh, joining joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Eric and Mike. Good to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you on. Great and, to see you. Um, I've known Dave first. I you know, got to know him through online activism and kind of the, the liberty world. Um, he's part of the uh, great antiwar.com where you're the news editor and then you host um, a show there, Anti-War News with Dave DeCamp. And uh, just been a big fan fan of your work for a while. And then we met, uh, was that last year at the Ron Paul, Ron Paul Institute event mm-hmm. down in uh, Virginia that I went to with Reed Coverdale and Adam Fitzgerald. And we met you and Pat McFarland there. So that was, that was a great gathering of... Uh, Liberty people and anti-war activists and people, you know, are part of the Ron Paul world. So I said, I've, you know, I've said to myself, I've, I read your stuff and I, I saw you on Russell Brand too recently a couple of times, which was so awesome to see that. And I'm like, I need to have Dave on the show. So wanted to uh, just get you on and, and you know, for starters, um, I know a little bit about your background, but what um, what was the path that that led you down to become an anti-war activist and a writer, like what, what were some of the things in your formative years that put you down this path? Yeah. So there, there's a few things, you know, that I trace back and look at, you know, kind of what shaped my political views. And it was really, uh, you know, through college, I mean, I wasn't, I didn't really pay much attention, but I was always anti kind of had the anti-war sentiment, you know, I was in high school during the Bush years. So that was just kind of, you know, the counterculture then was to be anti-war and it always kind of stuck with me. And then after college, one of the things that I, I trace it back to was actually Abby Martin going on Joe Rogan, I think in 2013. And she was talking about the Palestinians, you know, the way they're treated by Israel. And it was something I really like just didn't know anything about. And again, you know, I graduated college, you know, pretty recently. And I, I had no knowledge of the situation there. And then I started reading a lot about Israel and Palestine and how, you know, the Nakba and how the state of Israel came into creation and kind of just having the whole narrative flipped, you know, understanding the history made me open me up to kind of realizing that, you know, they're lying about so many uh, different things. And then around the 2016 election, I remember everybody was just so hysterical uh, about Trump and uh, also about Hillary. And, you know, they were kind of missing the point, I think, a little bit on both of them. Hillary, you know, was a warmonger. She was really responsible for Libya. And Trump was out there. You know, he said had some good sentiment about the war in Iraq and stuff, but he was also saying he's going to bomb the hell out of them. He's going to kill their families. And he ended up doing that. You know, he ramped up drone strikes and airstrikes. Every war he inherited, he really ramped up. So it was in those early Trump years that everybody was freaking out about Trump, but they nobody was going after him for his, uh, you know, bombings and, and supporting the war in Yemen. And it was really in 2018, in August 2018, the Saudis blew up a school bus in Yemen that killed you know, dozens of children with the U.S. made bomb. And it was, you know, it got some attention. But overall, the war in Yemen, this, uh, you know, genocidal war against the civilian population was just getting no attention. And it got me angry. And I started writing about it. And then in 2019, I started just sending stuff to antiwar.com and they were publishing it, you know, and I just kept sending them stuff. And then we got talking, you know, I got talking to Eric Garris, who runs the site, who's my boss today, and Scott Horton, of course, and Scott really helped me craft you know kind of get my my writing better because i wasn't you know really much an experienced writer um and then from there they said do you want to do some news coverage for us you know kind of write short news stories and that's the role that i fill now is i'm the news editor and i what i really like about it is that i'm learning so much like i'm not really an expert in anything but i'm kind of becoming one in u.s foreign policy because i read the news and i write about it every day u.s foreign policy news um, so it's really helping me out. And I think what we provide is pretty unique, too. There's not really many sites where we do this kind of daily news coverage from our anti-war perspective. And we you know, put things in proper context. Like recently, uh, the U.S. seized an Iranian oil tanker and stole the oil. And then afterward, Iran seized some tankers in the Persian Gulf. And there's stories about those Iranian seizures that don't even include the fact that the U.S. Right. just stole a shipment of Iranian oil. So that's why, you know, the value I think that we have. And it is, you know, you'd be surprised. Uh, I think it was Dan McAdams that described antiwar.com. This was before I was there when he was still working in D.C. as sort of an intelligence brief, kind of an open source daily 
brief and he would print out all the articles, uh, you know, give them to Ron Paul when he was in Congress. And that's kind of what I think we are in the anti-war movement. You know, we're kind of the intelligence side of things. And uh, we give you, I try to give the best information I can. You know, I don't really go based on rumors and things on Twitter, Telegram. Um, I feel like that's kind of a different thing. Uh, so that's, you know, I think an informed anti-war activist is much more effective, uh, you know, than one that's not so informed. Oh, absolutely. And and kind of the beginning of my anti-war activism was kind of high school, almost early to mid-high school uh, in the lead up to the Iraq war. Um, I was actually looking at all the publications, you know, New York Times, um, how, you know, they were talking about it, you know, Judith Miller's pieces, which we, which we later learned were, you know, just basically propaganda. Um, but at that time, I somehow came across uh, Knight Ritter and what they were saying about it and about the intelligence and about what Cheney was saying. And I was like, wow, this is really, this is totally different than what I'm hearing from everywhere else. And so that I kind of stuck on that path. And after the 04 election, um, I had supported Kerry because I really believed he was anti-war. You know, I was only 18, 17, just turned 18 that year. So, you know, shows how much I had to learn. But I've, I've definitely stuck with that on candidates I support and, and how I look at the world. Um, I try to view it through a foreign policy lens because I feel like every two to four years, especially every four years when we have a general election, there's only a few issues that they really allow to talk about and have discourse. And very rarely do you hear anybody really addressing uh, foreign policy in a meaningful way. So who do you see right now as, as a politician or, you know, a voice that's actually talking about foreign policy and what's going on with Russia, Ukraine uh, in, in a mm. truthful and accurate way? Well, yeah, I mean, I think when you look at the Republican side right now, I mean, you have Trump, which is interesting, the things he's saying. He had that CNN town hall and he said, oh, I just want them to stop killing each other, which you know, I think it was a pretty good thing to say, but it's also Trump. And while he was in office, you know, he signed off on the first, yeah. you know, missile deliveries to Ukraine. And he had a very hawkish uh, foreign policy toward he Russia. Did. And, you know, part of that is because of Russiagate. Uh, but still, you know, that that's, you know, it's tough to take anything really seriously that Trump says. He says a lot of things. He's usually talking out both sides of his mouth. And then DeSantis, uh, he just had his announcement yesterday, and I didn't listen to that whole Twitter space, but from what people told me, I mean, foreign policy wasn't even really discussed. And then he was asked about Ukraine when he went on Fox News later in the day, and he just said something about how the military's woke and he would favor a settlement in Ukraine. So I don't trust him on Ukraine. Uh, so really, you know, the only person that's saying anything interesting is RFK Jr., who you guys just interviewed, which, uh, you know, I mentioned before we went on here, I was really impressed by that whole interview and just the way it was shot. It was really awesome. And both of your knowledge kind of about the Kennedys and things, you know, I don't know too much about. It was just impressive all around. But, you know, what you. Kennedy is saying, I mean, is really important on Ukraine. I've been kind of listening to his podcast, too. He recently had um, Ben Ablo on there, who is the author of a book called How the West Brought War to Ukraine. He was actually a, a sponsor of my podcast for a little while. He's an awesome guy, super knowledgeable and no hyperbole. You know, he just gives you the facts. Um, yeah. So the fact that he's talking to him, he's talking to Colonel McGregor. And I think his what he's saying about Ukraine is really uh, great. And one thing I noticed after his launch on his website, his foreign policy stuff, he said, you know, we need to unwind the American empire. He's not just saying... You know, because this anti-war rhetoric is popular and saying, oh, that you're against the wars in the Middle East right now is politically uh, something you can get away with, something you could do, you know, even if you're a Republican. Mm. So that doesn't really mean that much right now. You really need to oppose, you know, uh, the war in Ukraine and also just empire in general, or we're going to get entangled in more messes. Uh, and one thing I try to focus on is China and Taiwan, how the U.S. is really trying to ramp up arms sales and really uh, provoke what it seems like is provoke China to take some action over Taiwan. And I think it's really dangerous. And, and the U.S. military is discussing openly that they're preparing for a war with China, not a proxy war, a direct war, which they got nukes, too. We, You know, it's just we can't fight a war with Russia for the same reasons that we can't fight a war with China. That's something uh, I haven't really heard. Maybe you guys have heard RFK Jr. talk about too much. I would like to kind of nail down his position on China and Taiwan. Um, because again, I think that's really, you know, I don't, I don't want to downplay anything that's happening in Ukraine. I mean, things that just happened recently are insane and, and we can get into that, but 
really I'm trying to focus on this China thing because I think it's not really getting the attention that uh, it deserves. I totally agree, Dave, and, and thank you for your kind words. That really means a lot coming from you. And 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 like Eric was saying off air, um, your work at antiword.com is is uh, it's always been exceptional, and I think it's vital. And I think people, if you want to get a really, you know, thirty thousand foot uh, elevated look at what's going on with foreign policy, check out antiword.com and you know support them uh, because that voice is so important. But but I agree. Um, I think that with Russia, Ukraine, that's been at the forefront of our national dialogue for obviously well over almost a year and a half since this thing started. Um, but Taiwan and China, I mean, yeah, that's huge because it's almost like on the right, it's acceptable to uh, thump your chest about China. And then on the left now it's, it's Ukraine. So it's both, both are bad takes in my view. And, and there has to be more nuance and more than just sloganeering and, and uh, jingoism when it comes to that. But um, I, I haven't looked too much into China and Taiwan, so I am very curious to hear what your thoughts are on that. And I, I ha I'm not sure yet what RFK Jr.'s take is, but I imagine it's probably similar in that he doesn't want more. Yeah. Uh, so pretty pretty much what's happening now, I mean, the situation over Taiwan, it's kind of a strange arrangement that the U.S. and China have over it that I think a lot of Americans don't understand. And when I realized that they don't understand was if you remember in the early days of the pandemic in 2020, uh, somebody from the World Health Organization was having like a video interview with somebody and they asked him about Taiwan and he was like, uh, huh, what? Taiwan? And he hung up or something. So the thing is there that a U.N., you know, World Health Organization official doesn't want to act as if Taiwan's a country because the U.N. doesn't recognize Taiwan as a country. And everybody said, oh, you know, the, uh, the U.N., the WHO, they're owned by the CCP. Uh, but in reality, you know, the, that's an American policy that they don't recognize Taiwan as a country as well. And, you know, the reason why that happened is because Taiwan is a relic of the Chinese Civil War in 1949 when Mao beat back, you know, the nationalist forces of Chiang Kai-shek. They fled to Taiwan. The U.S. didn't recognize the Mao government until the 70s, and they said Taiwan is China. You know, Taiwan is the Republic of China, and they they're the rightful government over this huge landmass that is mainland China, and they didn't have relations with uh, Mao. And then Nixon decided to go over there in 1972 and they opened up with China. And then from there until 79, they kind of worked out their diplomatic relations. And it's based on the fact that the U.S. does not recognize Taiwan as a country. Now, they, the U.S. and China agreed that the U.S. could maintain sort of informal diplomatic relations with Taiwan. They have a de facto embassy there and that they could keep selling them weapons. But part of that deal was for the U.S. to pull troops out of Taiwan, to end their mutual defense treaty. And uh, eventually there was a communique that they issued in 1982 during the Reagan years that the U.S. said they're going to eventually scale down their arms sales to Taiwan and China's goal is, you know, what they call reunification, uh, whether it's going to happen now or in a thousand years was basically what the communists were saying at the time. So in recent years, you know, that arrangement has been changing. And really, it's because the U.S. has been increasing, you know, diplomatic support for Taiwan and ramping up arms sales, which really happened during the Trump administration. Of course, a lot happened in between there. And there were negotiations between the mainland and Taiwan, and a lot of political changes happened in Taiwan. Now they have the Democratic Progressive Party running the show, and they're more independence-minded. But the op the main opposition party is the Kuomintang, and they still believe, you know, that they're China, <laughs> that they're the rightful government over China. So it's not like that's just a view in Beijing that they say, you know, Taiwan's China, you know, part of China. They the Kuomintang also believe that, but they have their own. They think they're the rightful government. So it's again, it's a strange situation, but it matters more similar to Ukraine. This matters more to China, you know, way more than it matters to the United States. And what the U.S. is really doing right now by increasing, you know, they're kind of violating that arrangement. And this is something Chaz Freeman said recently in an interview with Scott Horton. Freeman was Nixon's interpreter in 1972 when he went mm -hmm. to China and he worked in the State Department. He was an assistant secretary of defense. And he said basically what the U.S. has been doing, you know, recently by ramping up arms sales and they just deployed about 200 U.S. troops to Taiwan. That's the biggest known military presence uh, since, you know, 1979 is that they're violating this agreement. Uh, they're acting like they're not, but, you know, they are. And it's making China very angry. 
and China is increasing military pressure on Taiwan directly in response. If you remember, uh, a big part of this is the, the, the diplomacy too. It's kind of more provocative to China, these high level meetings between US and Taiwanese officials, because that's something, you know, that wasn't happening for decades. You know, if you remember when Nancy Pelosi, Pelosi. was in Taiwan, yeah, yeah, that was a big deal. Yeah. So, because she, you know, China views the House Speaker as the third highest uh, level US government official. So she went there and China launched their largest ever military exercises around Taiwan. In response, they simulated a blockade. They never did that before. They fired missiles over the island. They never did that before. So it shows how, despite kind of this narrative that you get in the media, China's doing all these things in reaction to what the U.S. is right. doing. And it doesn't, you know, make China's position, you know, right or anything. It's just the reality. You know, people have to look at this in, in just a realistic view uh, Kevin McCarthy, the House Speaker, he met with the Taiwanese president in California recently, China. And, you know, it was significant because it marked the highest level meeting between a Taiwanese president and a U.S. official in the United States since that year, 1979. China launched pretty similarly large drills, not quite as big as the Pelosi ones, but same thing, kind of simulated a blockade. So there's no way of looking at this and not realizing it's very obvious that the more the U.S. increases support for Taiwan, China is going to react by putting the island under more military pressure. But now the narrative of the hawks in Washington is, no, we need to ramp up. We need, uh, you know, to give them more weapons, you know, and, you know, to prevent the war. But it's clear that it's going to make war more likely. And they also want to guarantee that we're going to defend Taiwan, which means they're saying we're going to go to war with China if this yeah. thing turns hot. It's right on right in the nose about that. And, and that's, that's how it works with our foreign policy establishment in the legacy media is they report, uh, you know, for example, you mentioned Israel and Palestine, they report Hamas is sending rockets in over to Israel, but they don't, they leave out what led up to those rockets being fired over there. They, the Nakba, I mean, a lot of Americans don't even know what the Nakba is. So with the Taiwan and China situation, of course, they're going to be hyper-focused on Chinese response. Well, they won't even call it response. They'll just call it a provocation. And they'll mm. they'll leave out the background and the nuance or what led to that provocation, just like with uh, Russia and Ukraine. Putin just all of a sudden one day decided to do this uh, operation and invade Ukraine. Nothing happened before that. And that's what a lot of Americans see. So that's you know why people should check out antiwar.com and your work, Dave, and Scott Horton and everybody, because... You guys fill in, um, you provide that information and you do it in a very clear and concise way. And it doesn't have the hyperbole and the hysteria. And, you know, I, I said this to uh, Lori Spencer, who I had on last night. A, a lot of people forget that Twitter isn't real life and that real life is being out, you know, with friends and family and your neighbors and out with people in the world. And you'll find that most people are very reasonable and they're, you know, are they are receptive to this kind of information but they don't know what they don't know. So I mm. think that's you know part of our role here in independent media um, is to really uh, put these put this information out there for people to see and to understand. Um, so I, I do think China is 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 not going to go away as a topic um, in this upcoming election. And certainly you're going to hear like DeSantis and Trump and all of them on, on the right in the Republican primary, Nikki Haley, they're going to they're gonna try to out neocon each other on the issue of China and mm -hmm. Taiwan. So it's something it, people should pay attention to. Yeah. And the Democrats have basically caught up with the Republicans on China now. I mean, it's if you listen, watch any of these hearings in the Senate about China, I mean, it's completely hysterical. Like it's not these aren't serious conversations that they're having <laughs> yeah. that they're having. I mean, it's it's insane. And even when Biden ran for president, you know, he had an ad, you know, going after Trump for being soft on China. That's, that's um, completely and, outrageous. You know, a lot of people disagreed with me during the transition period. I was saying these, this Biden administration is going to be just as hawkish on China as Trump, if not more, because during the hearings, the Senate hearings, when Blinken was, was uh, you know, being sworn in and everything, they were saying, you know, the one thing Trump got right was China. He was tough on China. We should be more tough on China. Um, this guy, Eli Ratner, who is, I forget exactly what his position now is in the Pentagon, but he was initially appointed as an advisor to Lloyd Austin, the Secretary of Defense, because the China Hawks didn't think Austin had enough experience in Asia. 
So they appointed this guy, Eli Ratner, from the Center for a New American Security Think Tank, which is basically the neocon think tank today. <laughs> and he PDAC. wrote an, like an op-ed you know, during the Trump administration saying Trump was too weak on China. So these are the people running their China policy. Um, and, and it's very clear that this is the direction we're going now. I think a lot more people have woken up to the fact that Biden is not some sort of you know Chinese puppet. Uh, that's kind of a narrative that's been going around. That's silly. And, some people think it's because they're mad at China because they're not, uh, you know, they're helping Russia with uh, buying, you know, all their oil and everything. But this has been brewing for a while. This was always kind of the plan. Uh, even if you look back, you know, decades ago, what the neocons were saying, it was all about Southeast Asia. Um, you know, it's kind of the culmination of everything. And again, they're planning for a war with China. They're not planning to support Taiwan. You know, it would be hard because it's an island and China could blockade it. So it couldn't really be like Ukraine. But this is what they're saying, that they're going to fight a war with China. Uh, they're saying that they want to avoid it, but they're ready to do it. And by building up their forces, you know, they just signed a deal with the Philippines to open more bases there. Jeez. They just did their largest ever military exercises with the Philippines. Um, they're expanding. They just signed a deal with Papua New Guinea to, to start. You know, there's going to be U.S. troops over there now. This is all like this big buildup that's this happening. Madness. Yeah. Trump's going to open a casino there. Trump, Papua New Guinea. It's going to be unbelievable. We're going to train <laughs> train the rebels and people by by uh, by day, and then by night we're gambling with women of the night. That's madness. <laughs> so what, what would that look like? So it, it kind of alluded to what you mentioned, uh, China and Russia. Russia going more towards China, obviously, in response mm -hmm. to what's happened um, since early last year with Ukraine. Um, you know, what... It, Russia and China against the U.S., what, what, what do you think that looks like? Like just in terms of manpower, how that would compare to the forces we had in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, we know how that went, obviously. Mm -hmm. uh, but, I mean, really, what does that look like for America and our I mean, economy if it's a, and our troops and, and, and our society, in your view? I mean, if that happens, like a real World War III with the U.S. on one side and Russia and China on the other side, I mean, we're, we're done, you know. The human race might is toast. I mean, if it doesn't go nuclear right away, I mean, if they're both involved, Russia and China, I can't imagine that it wouldn't turn nuclear pretty quickly. Um, but either way, I mean, the you know, with all the new weapons and stuff that they're making, and uh, you know, kind of this advanced technology that they're working on, and satellite missiles, I mean, that those are the types of things, and cyber attacks that could, you know, destroy our infrastructure and. You know, those things are going to be really employed. So I think even if, you know, it doesn't, it stays conventional and say it's just a war between the U.S. and China in the in the South China Sea, uh, you know, in the Pacific region, you know, because of all these this new type of warfare, you know, American, the American people, we're going to feel it. Uh, and they're going to need to draft people to put on ships in in uh, in Asia over there, you know, they're going to need bodies to fill, fill the ships and China, Chinese missiles are going to be killing lots of American sailors. I mean, it's just going to be a horrific war. And if there's a land war in Europe with Russia as well, I can't imagine that actually happening. Uh, but I mean, it just, I mean, man, it, it's scary it would, to think about Dave. It really, it's truly horrifying to think. About. Yeah. It would be the end of life as, as we know it. It's fair to say that even if it doesn't go nuclear, I mean, things would just, it would be it has to be avoided at all costs and the thing is is that it doesn't really it won't cost much to avoid it <laughs> no it's just they're hell-bent on uh you that know was, you know that was protecting... be my, my next question for you dave so i watched you on uh russell brand's show which was so awesome um you know congrats on that that's a that's a big show and that shows me uh, Russell is thinking big picture, and he he said, you know, we turn to antiwar.com. That's where we do our research, and I look at <laughs> yeah, I look yeah. at his writings, and I thought that was so cool, man. Um, but one of the segments when you were on there, you know, you were kind of talking about um, Ukraine and Russia, and either the former Israeli president or, or I think um, it was saying he kind of was in the mix talking to them and getting concessions on both sides. So, what do you think would be you know, this is a hypothetical, but like, say you're you're on the lead on this, and, and you're in a position to do something. What what could be done to reach an agreement over there between the two sides and end this thing? Uh, well, I mean, what has to happen is that the U.S. has to, you know, make a deal with Russia. You know, this isn't really about. I mean, it is obviously about Ukraine, but you know, the Ukrainian officials say so themselves that their entire war effort is 
is uh, reliant on this support from the U.S. and other Western countries. So in order for there to be a, an end to this war, I mean, right now, you know, if Biden, you know, got on the phone with Putin, the thing that we're missing is communication. And I think it shows that how nefarious this all is, because you mentioned uh, Naftali Bennett. He was a former Israeli pr prime minister when the war broke out. And he said he was negotiating between Putin and Zelensky and that the West ultimately blocked his efforts. And there's other we know from other reporting that the U.S., and its allies did discourage negotiations between Russia and Ukraine when the war first broke out. So, uh, you know, it's, let's just say by some miracle, I'm in some sort of position uh, where I can broker a deal to end the war in Ukraine. I mean, the thing to do, they have to just tell the Ukrainians, uh, you know, we're not going to give you any more support. Uh, we want to broker a some kind of deal. Um, you know, we're going to freeze all of our support for you. Let's say if they want to keep fighting, you know, that's up to them. Get on the phone with Putin, uh, have a summit in Geneva or somewhere and say, all right, we're going to roll back NATO. Uh, you know, we're not going to give Ukraine this guarantee that they're going to join NATO. You know, Finland, I don't want them to join. You know, I, I ultimately think we should disband NATO. You know, that's my, my views are pretty radical, you know, libertarian, but let's say just from a more realistic perspective, if a president gets in that wants to really end the thing and isn't going to just like end the U.S. empire overnight, the deal is, okay, we're going to give you that, that guarantee. Ukraine is not going to be a NATO member. Uh, Ukraine should be neutral. That's our position. Uh, we're going to roll back NATO, pull out the Aegeus missile systems in Romania and Poland. Let's make a deal. Uh, let's find peace. We don't need to be at war like this let's work on nuclear arms control and i think russia would be very receptive to that because that's what they were looking for before they invaded right you know they weren't engaged in intense negotiations with ukraine before they invaded they were talking to them but they were engaged in intense negotiations with the u.s trying to get a deal a guarantee that ukraine won't join nato that's the big thing it's all about they want ukraine to be neutral that's what henry kissinger said for years before this this isn't some fringe view this is clearly why Russia invaded. Um, and, you know, the U.S. is in a position where it could end this thing, where it could have ended this thing years ago. Uh, but instead, they chose not to. It just it, the political will isn't there. So do you think it is that the president and the people steering the foreign policy are just such beholden to the interests that want a sustained conflict that they can't do anything? Or do you think they just don't give it give a rat's ass? I think the people running the show right now, uh, you know, which is really Blinken and Jake Sullivan and Victoria Newland and people like mm. that. I think they're uh, they just, you know, this is what they want. They want to destroy Russia. They don't want Russia to have any influence outside of its borders. Uh, you know, it is kind of a neocon view of the world. You know, they want to maintain U.S. global dominance and it's obviously backfiring on them. You know, Russia and China's relationship growing because of these sanctions on Russia, these sanctions on China. It's just so obvious that 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 was going to be the result. And this really does threaten, you know, the dominance of the U.S. dollar when you have China, Russia and other countries under sanctions and, and other countries that haven't really been sanctioned by the U.S., but they're saying, oh, there's an alternative to the U.S. led, you know, financial system. Let's trade in the yuan. Uh, so, you know, they're losing their their this administration is really losing the grip of American dominance. Uh, around the world uh, because of these policies they want to pursue. I think it's just hubris. It's just like an imperial yeah, hubris. Imperial and, hubris. You know, Trump, of course, the Trump administration, they were sanctioned crazy. So they, they're responsible as well. You know, every administration going back a long time is responsible. But this is just kind of the culmination. And these people uh, are, I think, just hell bent on world domination. And they think they can do it, you know, any way they want by force. Isn't it wild? You mentioned Henry Kissinger. Isn't it wild that you have a, a guy like Henry Kissinger, who I would consider a war criminal? Mm. Uh, happy birthday, by the way, Doctor Kissinger. Hundred years uh, young. Have him saying old. that. Having have him now saying something that's reasonable about foreign policy. You know, with yeah. respect to Russia and Ukraine. You know, it's like, wow. That, well, that's it goes alarming. to show, and I mean, that's the point. You know, I know Scott Horton's working on his book. But I have been, uh, you know, about how the the war was provoked, and you know, there's going to be a lot in there. Um, but I have Ben Abla's book here sitting on my desk. I just read expert excerpts once in a while because, you know, he puts in quotes from, you know, cold warriors like, uh, um, man, I'm blanking on his name, George Kennan. 
Oh, George yeah. Kennan was a diplomat during the Cold War. He's credited with crafting the containment strategy of the Soviet Union. No, he's no dove. And when NATO first started expanding in, I think, 97, he did an interview with Thomas Friedman in the New York Times. And he says, this is, you know, there's no reason for this to happen. This is a tragic mistake. There's, he said, I mean, very strongly opposed NATO expansion. And so did a lot of other people. Uh, again, not just people like us. Uh, because it was obvious that it would lead to something like this. Right. Um, so it's so frustrating. So that's why I keep the book here because it, you know, sometimes, you know, you question what you're doing when, uh, you know, there's so many people kind of opposing our point of view, but this book really helps me like, okay, I'm right. You know, it solidifies the view that what we're doing, you know, is right. Uh, trying to get this message out. Even Reagan and Gorbachev together, what year was that? 1986 when they met at that little house, uh, it really was their hardliners on both sides that prevented any kind of nuclear drawdown. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, the, the idea that uh, diplomacy is kind of like a four letter word now. And it wasn't like that, uh, you know, during the Reagan years. And there were the hardliners that prevented things from happening. But he did a lot to, uh, you know, people don't really think of Reagan as a diplomat. But the deals <laughs> that him and George H.W. Bush reached with the Soviet Union were really uh, good for world peace. And they got rid of a lot of nuclear weapons. Um, again, Nixon's trip to China, which I mentioned was one of the best things I think that's happened in, in the history of American presidents, because there's no, no reason to keep that country, you know, isolated from the rest of the world. Um, because we saw what happened when it was, you know, so many people dying and now they're, they are, uh, flourishing in a way. And of course the government, uh, you know, is more authoritarian than, most in the West in their own way, domestically, they, they, you know, it's not, uh, you know, there's a lot wrong with it. Sure. But you know, what happened, the improvement in the, in, in their, in the living there, living standards in China has been, you know, miraculous, uh, how quick it happened. So same with Russia too. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's just, we shouldn't keep countries isolated. There's no need to do that. And diplomacy is definitely the way over, you know, just shutting countries out. It doesn't make any sense. It's completely it's, counterproductive. It's silly. And that was that was a high point for me um, of the king when he was president for four years. When, when he went over in style and met with Rocket Man and then they sashayed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When they sashayed on the DMZ that day, I was actually like, you know, I, I took on comers from all sides. I said, you know what? I'm in full support of what Donald Trump yeah. is doing here. And this this is a triumph of personality. You yeah. know, Rocket Man's a personality. Trump is a personality. And to me, whatever, by any means, let's come together and at least talk. Now, if policy wise and action wise, a lot of things didn't come of that, that at least opened the door for something. And yeah. I tell people there are million, there are tens of millions of people on the Korean Peninsula that are very happy that, that those meetings happened mm -hmm. and that we didn't bomb uh, North Korea and we didn't engage in regime change and go in there because the fallout from that would, I think, would, would make Iraq, you know, look like Disneyland. Mm -hmm. yeah. Because you're talking about nuclear weapons and you're talking about China being so close. And then, you know, Japan, um, the people in Japan are there. So um, that, you know, those, those are one of the things I cheer on about Donald Trump and I like about him. Um, but, but this is another reason why I'm so excited about RFK Jr.'s campaign, because obviously he's a personality and the Kennedy name is a brand in politics. It's universally recognized. Everyone knows the Kennedys. I think that RFK Jr. could could kind of do similar things. He could really bypass the D.C. foreign policy establishment, the blob, mm. what they call it down there. And he could engage in that kind of diplomacy. Um, so when you see that happen, I mean, it, to you, does, does that show you like when Trump does things like that or if Kennedy could do things like that? Is that them kind of going rogue of the foreign policy establishment and just saying, I'm going to take matters into my own hands? Yeah, uh, I think to some extent, that's definitely what Trump did there, because it was really his own people that sabotaged uh, any progress from happening. Um, but yeah, I, I agree. I think Trump going and meeting with Kim, especially when he just flew into the DMZ like he did that day. <laughs> I know. That was amazing. It I mean, was I think incredible, that's the dude. best thing he ever did. Yeah. And, you know, yeah, they didn't sign any agreements or anything. But for a long time, tensions were pretty cool there on the Korean Peninsula because of that. Now, if you look at what Biden has done, you know, resuming these huge war games, the, the U.S. is sending nuclear weapons to South Korea. They're going to dock a nuclear armed submarine there just to, you know, just as a provocation. There's no other reason to do it. 
Um, you know, the nuclear armed submarines are always could always be patrolling the waters there. We don't know, but that's why it shows like there's no reason to dock it in South Korea other than to say, ah, look at us. We got nukes on the Korean Peninsula now. Yeah. And there's Korean North Korean missile tests all the time. Uh, things can pop off over there right now. Like it, it's it's about as bad as it could be short of like a, another war erupting there right now. And that's because they're not talking. They're just kind of uh, doubling down on doing these big war games. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, we could definitely use more of Trump's Korea policy. I, I think we could have yeah. gone without the all the threats that he made before he started talking <laughs> to like, Kim. Dude, the UN, he's like, I will unleash a fire and fury on you, the, the likes of which we've never seen before. And then like a couple of weeks later, they're eating Big Macs and they yeah, love each other. Yeah, yeah. Well, he had somebody pass me a love letter during science class and it was very nice. It said, do you like me? Yes, no, maybe circle one. And quite frankly, I circled maybe. <laughs> Boy, you'd love to read that love letter, Dave, wouldn't you? You'd love I to would. read that. And But that's, that's the type of thing that I like too. But um, to your point of putting, you know, uh, armed submarines, you know, over there so close to their country and their sovereignty, um, and of course, you know, the, the, the tests going on in the war games, um, you have human error is a calculation, I think, mm. that people overlook. Um, obviously, you know, I think the 90s, we had the Cassini flyover, I think it was called, where there was actually an armed uh, missile that was unaccounted for, unaccounted for that flew over the continental U.S. And they just kind of were like, oh, oops, that was actually, yeah, that was a, that was actually a live, uh, you know, a live round. Um, yeah. So, something like, I don't I forget all the details of that story, but you have that. Um, you've got the you know Russian submarine operator, that famous story. Um, their communications during the uh, Cold War were, um, you know, they were jammed or they were offline because there had been I think a, a bomb that went off closer to the surface. So they, they and it was him and two other Russian sub submarine operators, and they it, they ultimately had the final word on whether they were going to launch a nuke and. One of them vetoed it and said, no, we're not going to do that. We want to see what's going on. So that's just one story. So yeah. I think human error, I mean, because as we push the clock closer to midnight, that opens up, I think, more room for human error. And that, that's, that's pretty frightening. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And one thing uh, that I cover a lot is the South China Sea, where uh, China has, you know, kind of these like military outposts that they made on these islands, disputed islands. And the U.S., you know, in response to China making these claims has sent you know, really ramped up uh, like surveillance flights, spy planes and, and stuff. U.S. planes are just flying all over there and more U.S. warships. And they have encounters with Chinese planes and Chinese vessels. So, yeah, something there, say one commander gets a little too loose and, you know, fires a missile or something. Who knows what that could turn into, you know, kind of the spiral of escalation. Um, you know, that's not even talking about nuclear weapons, the, the potential error there. I mean, uh, there's just so many flashpoints right now where things could really pop off, especially also between Russia and NATO countries. You know, they're always intercepting planes uh, coming close to collisions, you know, in the Black Sea, in the Baltic Sea. So that could turn into something. Um, there's just so many ways that, uh, you know, a big war could could be sparked. Uh, same thing with the war games in South Korea right on the border uh, that they're doing right now, live, the biggest live fire drills they've done in a while. Uh, it's just really reckless, and it just it's it's insane, and it's normal. It's normalized. It's been normalized. Yeah, and that's one thing that I like about what Kennedy's saying is, you know, again, that's something he kind of hinted at in his in his foreign policy thing on his website was that it's become so normalized how the U.S. is involved everywhere and backing coups. Um, you know, we need a radical change in in this. It, just this arrangement, you know, it's not sustainable. This is going to end really badly for everybody. You know, if we keep going down this path. Well, it's, it spreads our resources thin and it, I think it leaves us in a position of weakness. And I think, um, you know, the reason I, I love JFK and I've always been an admirer of the Kennedys. Um, of course, they're not perfect and have their faults. Um, they, they looked at the world that way. They, they, you know, JFK was really big on, um, like Latin American countries and African countries uh, and their right to self-determination and their right to be free of an imperial or, or a monarch uh, grip on, on their, their country, to have their own independence and their own sovereignty and the right to choose their own destiny within their own borders. And we've just moved so far away from that. And we just have this belligerent, psychotic um, 
foreign policy and, and group of thugs steering the ship into oblivion that uh, you're right, man. And they, they use the media, they use sports, they, they use social media to just hammer it into our heads that it's normal that the United States should have nearly a thousand military bases all mm -hmm. over the planet. And yeah. when you actually point it out to somebody who doesn't really think too deeply about it um, or even really considers it, and you say, hey, you know, really think about that. Think, imagine if country X, Y, or Z, especially if it's one that's historically been hostile to the United States, you know, we're here in New England. Imagine if they had 15 bases along the border of Canada and Maine and New Hampshire, and they were just firing rockets and they were screwing off and doing whatever the hell they wanted. They were, you know, terrorizing the, the native uh, the population there on the border and kind of running amok and doing what they please. Uh, how would you feel about that? And it's a simple question. It's a simple scenario to imagine. And they're like, it would suck. I would hate it. So yeah. I think that informs a lot of the work that we do, Dave. Yeah. Sometimes it feels like it's almost like a cliche for me to say that, but it's so important. Like just say, imagine, you know, put the shoe on the other foot. Because I was thinking about this. So the other day on Monday, there was this cross-border raid into Russia, into Belgorod, which is one of the Russian oblasts that borders Ukraine. And it was like these... Apparently, this the, the, the Ukrainians are saying that they're Russian citizens who fight for Ukraine and they launched this attack inside Russia and they had NATO armored vehicles and probably uh, no, not NATO, U.S. armored vehicles and other types of NATO equipment. One of the groups, they're called the Russian Volunteer Corps. They're neo-Nazis like and, and this isn't Russian propaganda. This is what, you know, their members call themselves neo not They're open neo-Nazis. And their leader is a neo-Nazi who has a white nationalist clothing brand. So anyway, <laughs> could you imagine a group of neo-Nazis attacking the U.S. with Russian weapons? You know, I can't even fathom it. Like what, what, how we could get there, like get to that point or what the U.S. would do. Like it's just so out of, I can't even imagine it. Like I said, it's just, and that's what happened in Russia apparently this week was a group of neo-Nazis armed with American military equipment, you know, invaded Russia. And somehow that's not like... That's nuts. Enough well, well, hey, one say. of them almost got Biden at the White House, man. He had that flag. And oh, then yeah, that's wall. right. Yeah, That was close. Truck. Yeah. I heard that was a Russian uh, U.S. That, that was an Indian white nationalist, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah. It's just... It, it is, Dave. It's cartoonish. It's really cartoonish. And... Um, the propaganda machine that supports the militarism in the empire seemingly has endless resources and power and wealth and the ability to mold perception. And I think that's one way we can push back against it is to properly identify and point out that these people are propagandizing us and they are shaping your perception on how you view the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. And of course, not everybody can travel and go to other countries and leave the United States and experience uh, other cultures and, and civilizations and, and where other people are coming from. Um, but, you know, we do have to step outside of ourselves and, and just consider the rest of the world. And I think that's, uh, that's a hard thing to do for a lot of people because we are wrapped up in our lives. We have our 40 hour a week rat race. And, it, you know, that's kind of all by design to keep us uh, distracted and confused and, and, when things happen that, you know, that's why a lot of the populace just, they just go with the official narrative because, mm -hmm. Oh, these are the experts. We're told to believe these think tankers, these guys with the fancy titles from these think tanks um, in Washington that end up being funded by a handful of the same sources, the same group of people who are, who are serving a, uh, an interest in a corporate master who stands to benefit from these wars and these conflicts happening because, Someone has to make the armaments and the bullets and the munitions and the ships and the, and the jets and the bombs. Um, but on the same token, and maybe you get this in your life, Dave, I hear from people that Mike and I grew up with that we went to high school with, middle school, even going that far back. And we were talking about we were, we were against the Iraq war in the lead up to it after 9-11 in high school. We were oh uh, two oh three. We were like sophomores, juniors in high school. And we were very public against the Iraq war, speaking out against it and like kind of ringing the bell and saying, guys, you know, 9-11 and, and Iraq are, have nothing to do with each other. We, we, this, this is going to be awful. Um, have you found that people who haven't really paid attention to this but see what the work you're doing and know what you're all about, 
have they reached out to you and kind of said, Hey man, I listened to some stuff you said, and you know, you're right on about this. And because of some work you've done or what you said, I've kind of changed my view and I pay more attention to that because Mike and I have gotten that recently and it, you know, it feels, it feels good to hear that. Yeah. I've gotten that uh, from some people and I was actually just talking to a friend of mine that I used to work with, uh, you know, he was a pretty like, conservative guy and he's, and you know, he was, we were, I was talking to him, you know, we were talking about Ukraine and China and he was saying, you know, I used to be pretty gung ho about all, you know, going to war. But now, man, everything is just, you know, you can just see how much they're lying. And, and, you know, it was kind of a conversation about that. And it's interesting, really, the political dynamics in the U.S., the, the big shift with kind of more right wing people being anti-war is really amazing. Because, again, I was a child of the Bush years. You know, I was in high school for his uh, years in office. Yep. And where I live now in Virginia, you know, it's pretty rural. And when I first moved out here about two and a half years ago, you know, most of my neighbors, conservative Christian people, and I meet them and I'm like, oh, I got to tell my work for antiwar.com. They're probably going to think I'm some kind of crazy hippie or something. <laughs> some gummy. And I told them about it and they're like, yeah, we should get out of the Middle East. And I was like, what? <laughs> really? Wow. So it's pretty amazing. And, you know, the one thing that a lot of, again, right wing people are bad on is China. And that's another reason why I want to focus on it. And I feel like I've been getting through to more people. And I think the Ukraine war has really woken a lot of people up just seeing how much they're lying. Uh, you know, I think that's good. I think um, more and more people are waking up. And, and another thing that I think is important about RFK is that Democrats are going to listen to what he has to say. So to have him out there, you know, Democratic voters, I mean, so to have him out there and speaking the truth about the war in Ukraine, I think is going to be really valuable just for people's perspective in the U.S. to hear that, again, from a Democrat, because even though he has very different views than most uh, mainstream Democrats today, he's still he's got the Kennedy name and he's right about he was right about COVID. He was vindicated on that. And, uh, you know, it's pretty clear now over a year after this war started that he's right about Ukraine. So I think it's going to change a lot of people's minds on that spectrum so I think that's important. We really need that because if you look at Congress, there's no dissent among Democrats, uh, you know, when it comes to the war in Ukraine. So I think that's good to see. Yeah. I mean, Congress, we have uh, Thomas Massey and sometimes Matt Gates is right about things. And then mm -hmm. even Marjorie Taylor Greene is, is she's right on about wanting to audit the money we're sending there. I mean, mm -hmm. It's yeah, there's is, definitely like a significant portion of Demo of Republicans. It's, unfortunately, it's not enough to really change things now, but yeah. it's not something to write off that there is a good no, core of Republicans that are against the Ukraine stuff. Right, right. Yeah. But really, really, with when Tulsi left in uh, 20, uh, when she left, 2021, she was mm -hmm. the last Democrat, in my opinion, who was saying anything about any of this or having... Yeah having uh, any kind of semblance of a grasp on reality of it. And of course she, uh, similar to what Trump did, I mean, she bucked the foreign policy establishment when she went to Syria and met with Assad, which I think is, is one of the most based and courageous things a sitting member of Congress has ever done. Mm -hmm. and, and I say, I wish there were a couple members of Congress that had the spine to do that in the lead up to the Iraq war. Yeah. Go over Could there help. and talk to Saddam and look around and, shine more of a light on the weapons inspector inspectors and um, see that we're just being lied to again. We're being led down a pathway. It's these same people. They mm -hmm. do it. They just lead us down this path. And then their apparatuses and their vessels and the media put, put all the rhetoric out there. And, and it's just, it's a drumbeat for war. So um, we have to, we have to just keep shining a light on it. And, and it's when, when you are consistent, it's really, it's, it's actually easy to speak the truth about this stuff. When, when you when you follow a consistent set of values and beliefs about this and um, we what movie was that Mike we just watched about Knight Ritter about the dudes who were actually reporting about Iraq uh, shock and awe directed by um, uh, he's he has a lot of really horrible um, Reitman Reiner 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 oh yeah yeah is that who it was yeah, he directed this movie that kind of went under the radar. It came out in like 2018, 2019, and it's this the based on the true story of the Night Ritter reporters and and how they actually they had it right, you know, mm -hmm. that um, there were no WMDs and Ahmed Chalabi was just a con man and a grifter and a liar and being you know propped up by neocons and the INC and um, 
yeah, to see that movie come out is, is interesting because um, it kind of, like, like you were mentioning, hearkening back to the Bush era, uh, that was the largest anti-war rally I think we've seen in, in this country since the Vietnam era. And that's all dissipated now. Mm-hmm. I mean, most Democrats I know are, are pretty, they're actually pretty pro-war and it's kind of, it's kind of alarming, but I guess it's the reality now. Um, you know, they've bought into the propaganda so much and uh, a lot of them are, are going to be behind Biden no matter what. But, you know, to your point about Democrats listening to Kennedy, I think that's true as well, man. I think there's a lot of them who are willing to listen to RFK Jr. because they're not satisfied and happy uh, with the Biden administration and, and, you know, what he's been doing with our country the last couple of years. So it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, I don't think, you know, they're going to allow... Uh, Bobby to debate President Biden, but man, if he continues to climb in the polls and people continue to take to that message, it's just going to be embarrassing to the Biden administration. Mm. They're going to have. Yeah, to- I wanted to. I wanted to ask you guys what you think about that. Like, if there is a chance that they might, like, when it comes to the DNC, I don't really understand it well. So, they're do they like have to do a primary if he's running, or can they just like? Make so the DNC, yeah, according to them, according to the DNC, yeah. the DNC themselves, they don't have to do that. They don't have to do anything. Mm-hmm. They're basically like a private organization, not beholden um, to a lot of those outside rules. So they're yeah. going to really do everything they can to ice out any kind of debate. But man, if the American people and voters are want that and and, and respond to that, you know, negatively. Um, I think it's going to force their hand in some way, man, because you even in a lot of states, you can be a Republican in the day of the primary. You can change your affiliation and go vote Democrat. Yeah. So I think you're going to see a lot of Republicans or conservatives do that, um, not just out of spite for, you know, Biden administration and the, you know, um, DNC, but just for, for how how anti-democratic that is. I mean, that's that's. I want to say it's unbelievable, but I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised by that behavior. I mean, they're basically a mafia. You look at how they, what they did to Bernie Sanders in 2016 and 2020, and he uh, just rolled over both times. Yeah. I mean, that's that's where I think there's a difference. I don't see RFK Jr. just rolling over. Yeah, and we no do reason. we do no have reason, this though. no, and we do have this process where the super delegates play a role in the convention, and and they're on they're not more to any candidate, and they can choose. Who they're going to support and i think this is one area where if kennedy can can identify who these super delegates are and just start lobbying them and reaching out to them or having his people reach out to them and because if this is the game and this is the way you're going to do it well let me at least try you know because i think kennedy does have a lot to offer and you're going to see a lot of people who used to be democrats back in the day and and let's let's not discount the number of baby boomer generation who kind of become more conservative in their lives mm-hmm. do remember the Kennedy brothers when they were in power and, and how they ran things and what their ideals were and what they stood for. And they're seeing a, like a resurrection of that with RFK Jr.'s campaign. And I think that's going to compel a lot of people to either just register Democrat in a state where they can and vote for Kennedy and support him, um, who otherwise maybe would stay home for a primary. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. um, you know, think, here in New, um, New Hampshire, we can do that. We can certainly do that. And um, sorry, yeah, go. what were you going to say, Dave? I was just going to say, I thought it was interesting. Just my own anecdotal evidence is my parents. Like my dad is not really political at all, but he was like, at, he said, you see Kennedy, what he's doing? <laughs> you know, right. he likes to see it. And he was talking about, you know, we talked about the assassinations when he was a kid. He's like, man, I never would have thought you know, back then that it could have been, you know, the CIA, but now as you get like, you know, it was just an interesting conversation I had with him. Again, he's just not a political guy. And uh, so I think there's probably going to be a lot of examples of that because those, you know, for his people, his age, the, the boomers, you know, that was such, both of those assassinations were probably just such like a pivotal, you know, they remember that so vividly. And uh, so to see, you know, Bobby Kennedy's kid out there kind of just swinging against the establishment. I think a lot of people are just going to like it. Even it doesn't even really matter what their politics are. They might just want to see him do this. That's yeah. I'm with you on that. That, that, I'm I'm hearing that and I'm getting that from a lot of people who are apolitical or don't even really involve themselves in, in elections and such or put too much stock into it. 
because we we I don't think we've seen a figure like this run. This is this is like a really unique moment in American politics to have the namesake of Robert F. Kennedy uh, running and grabbing that torch that his father left when he was you know killed in '68. It's very powerful and it's it's a compelling story, and mm -hmm. I think a lot of people are excited about it and ready for it. And like you said, man, he is swinging at that establishment. I mean, going on mainstream media outlets and saying, yeah, the CIA was, was, I mean, it's pretty much, it's out there. They were involved in my uncle's assassination on some level, mm -hmm. at least if not the act of the, definitely the cover up of it. That's been going on for 60 years. Yeah. Why aren't all the records out? Why aren't all the files out? What stopped Trump and Biden from releasing them? You know, th those are very important and serious questions that we need to consider and ask ourselves. So I think the response we're seeing from the legacy media, from the democratic uh, you know, grand poobahs is, is kind of one of like shock and desperation because it's like, wow, one of, one of them is actually running. And then, you know, he's Kennedy's going to be able to raise a lot of money. He has a lot of friends in all sectors of society all around the world who still respect the Kennedys. And, and it still means something what his uncle and his father stood for and what they did when they were in power. So, you know, how much can he capitalize on that legacy? We're going to, we're going to find out. But I think people are going to be surprised. And you did see some of those early polls that already had him in the 20s. Yeah. yeah. Of, Dem of Democrats, of actual Democrats who intend on voting in the Democratic primary. Mm -hmm. and, and, and President Biden is, is just so um, the, his approval rating is low, even amongst Democrats. So I think all the conditions are right. It's just a matter of political will and people who aren't usually involved or feel like they don't have skin in the game to say, you know what, I am going to get involved and we all have skin in this game and no one's a perfect candidate. We're not going to agree on everything, but man, he's putting himself out there and he's offering to be the tip of the spear in this, you know, let's, let's help him out, support him. Mm -hmm. So I know certainly my brother and I will be doing all we can here in New Hampshire um, to help him and to promote his message and get it out there to the people. So we're really, really looking forward to that. Yeah, that's cool. We, uh, um, I'm definitely excited about it. You know, I think either way, no matter what happens, like I said, it's just going to be kind of a net positive to have him running. Um, yeah. You know, all my focus is on antiwar.com and we're, we're a nonprofit, so we can't really get in the mix when it comes sure. to stuff like that. Um, but, you know, I'm definitely uh, excited to see it. And I think, again, that he has that appeal that he can get a lot of people that aren't involved in politics. Uh, you know, to go vote for him uh, if it gets to that point. And who knows? It's going to be also just interesting to see what Biden does. I mean, he's so out of it. It's really pathetic. Yeah. And it's, elderly it's elderly abuse. Yeah. It's, it's it's sad. You know, say what you will about Biden when he was cognitive and he was, a, he was a total gangster and he's always been a hockey. Iraq war doesn't happen without Biden over in the Senate. Mm -hmm. um but yeah it's it's he's he's not in control it's like you said it's blinken it's sullivan it's the people yeah. running puppeteering biden so yeah they're going to do all they can but there there's a you know kennedy said give me a sword i need an army and there is an army uh it's just growing and beginning to stand up behind him and so. i do wonder say something happens to biden say he's just too incapacitated or something to run uh, then I guess there would have to be a primary, right? If mm -hmm. that happens. Oh well, yeah, you'll see, you'll see Gavin put up. Gavin Gruesome. Yeah. Coming from Cali. The, the the wine merchant, the slick American psycho, Gavin Gruesome. It's not gonna be Kamala because they don't even want her, man. They're like, oh God, Kamala and Buddha Judge, nope. Yeah. Not, yeah. We can't, it's not gonna be them. We got a couple comments here. JC says, I listen to Dave every day. Well, you oh, nice. That's awesome. That's always Dave's, cool to hear because it still is kind of unbelievable to me that people listen to me talk every day. Dave's, Dave's on the money. Kyle says, tuning in late. Awesome group of guys. Kyle, I agree with you 100%. Oh, yeah. Kyle's the man. Love we Kyle. love you, Kyle. We love you. We love you. We met in uh, D.C., me and Kyle. I saw you there briefly at the protest. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah, that was awesome, man. It was good to see you there with your boy. And that yeah. that, made, that really uh, – I left there feeling really good and energized after Rage Against the War Machine. Yeah, that was cool. I saw a really cool moment as I was walking out. Ron Paul was walking out, and he had kind of his little team because a lot of people were trying to swarm him. But yeah. you know Medea Benjamin from Code Pink? Oh, yeah. She went up to him and, like, gave him, like, a hug and said thank you. Like, seeing kind of that, like, Ron Paul, wow. right-wing libertarian, and Medea Benjamin. That was yeah. a good moment. And then I got to say hi to McAdams um, for a second. So, oh, yeah, that, it was cool. That I was, was really like, happy to go. 
oh man, I was so glad you were there and everyone who was there. To me, that was like the 99 MLB All-Star game at Fenway that they all swarmed around Ted Williams. And yeah, yeah. Just some of the greatest MLB players of the last so many years coming together um, under one banner. And I want to see more of that. So certainly I, I hope, you know, with that momentum, we'll, there'll be some more of those. Yeah, I think uh, there will be. Yeah. JC, thank you for the $5. Jackman Radio, two days in a row, you all are killing it. Yes, and we'll be we'll be another one tomorrow. We're doing we're doing more episodes. Nice. Uh, let's see. Okay. Well, that's what we got for comments. Well, awesome. Well, we'll wrap up there, Dave. Um, before we go, though, just tell everybody where they can go to see your great work and how they can support you. Yeah, if you go to antiwar.com and you see, you know, there's the top news section. That's usually. Uh, you know, most of those are articles that I've written. Um, that's what I focus on is kind of the daily news coverage. And I also do now a daily podcast five days a week, kind of just going over those stories for the people that don't, you know, really read to digest their news. That was the idea when I started it. And, you know, it's growing. Uh, it's pretty cool. Most people listen to the audio version. So you could listen to that wherever you listen to podcasts. And it's also on YouTube and Rumble and Odyssey. So wherever you prefer to watch things, uh, you could find it there. Um, so it's called Anti-War News with Dave DeCamp. That's me. And, yeah, that's those are that's what I'm up to. Well, that's Excellent. awesome. Well, yeah. Well, thanks, Dave. You're a good man, and you do great work. And uh, hang out with us after we end the broadcast here for a couple minutes. But uh, to everybody watching, thank you for tuning in. And uh, this is another great conversation. And you want to see more of these happening? We saw that in the comments. You know what you got to do. You got to go to patreon.com slash Jackman Radio. Become a patron of this podcast. Um, that's what helps us grow and continue to book guests. And like Dave said, the amazing quality of that Robert F. Kennedy Jr. interview uh, obviously was not a cheap production to put together. We want to continue to do more of those. And the way to do it is to build up our patrons and our supporters. So if you like what you see here, patreon.com slash Jackman Radio. Uh, so thank you, everybody, for tuning in. And we'll see you again next time.